The Fall of Hollywood's Empire. It's fight or flight for Tinseltown. I owe everything to George Bailey. Help him, dear father. Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God. Something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night, you're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's that clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We passed him up right along. Because you know... Do you remember good movies? I mean, really good movies. You had to see in the movie theater the second they came out. Movies so good you would sacrifice your grocery money to see. Do you remember lining up for hours on opening day? I do. I didn't just watch movies. I lived in them. I grew up on top of a mountain in Topanga Canyon, back when it wasn't a gated community for the 1% but was instead the land of the hippies, the Manson family, and the Rolling Stones. Our lives were full of the riches of the natural world, riding our ponies through the fire breaks, digging in the dirt, helping our mom with chickens and goats, and not coming inside until long after dark. That world would come to an end with a new boyfriend who would move us out of Topanga and through a series of suburban neighborhoods in Central California, We watched our ponies driven away in a horse trailer and couldn't stop crying about it for a year. Nothing could replace the natural world of Topanga, the feel of my pony's fur on my skin, the smell of eucalyptus trees, our untamed wilderness at our doorstep. Nothing, that is, until movies. My parents divorced when I was three. My dad picked us up on the weekends and drove us down one side of the mountain to Hollywood, to see kung fu and black exploitation movies. My mom would pack us in her VW bug and drive down the other side of the mountain to the Van Nuys Drive-In. They didn't make many movies for kids back then. We had to watch whatever the adults were watching. But we were spoiled by movies in the 1970s. They were so good, people still watch them today. I remember watching the adults laugh at Woody Allen's Sleeper. I had no idea what was so funny which would begin a lifelong love for and obsession with Woody Allen movies. What I didn't understand in Woody Allen's or any other movies, I would figure out as I navigated the treacherous waters of real life, far from the safety and darkness of a movie theater. Movies taught me how to kiss, how to laugh, what I wanted to be when I grew up. I turned to them always when life was too complicated. I was lucky to come of age at a time when artists could tell the truth, and they weren't constantly worried about saying or doing one wrong thing that would destroy their careers. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a picture of the Van Nuys Drive-In, 
with Ode to Billy Joe playing on the marquee. But movies aren't like they used to be. Everyone knows it. Something significant has been lost. We're missing a shared story. Without that, there is no way to make movies for everybody. And making movies for everybody is mostly how Hollywood has survived and thrived for a hundred years. They've been in trouble before. Television, VHS tapes, and now streaming have cut into box office sales. But what has hurt them the most is their insulation and isolation from the general public, the people who actually pay to see their movies. I got online in 1994 and joined a Usenet group writing about movies. By 1999, I was ready to join the Wild Wild Web with an HTML site that mimicked magazines and newspapers. I could do what they did with no overhead. I did the design and the writing and eventually managed the advertising. Best of all, I could write seven days a week at all hours of the day. Eventually, journalists would have to catch up with how fast the internet moved. It was the turn of the millennium, and anyone could build anything. I called my site oscarwatch.com to track the entire race year-round. I had a one-year-old baby to support, and I figured... I could build something that would allow me to raise her without putting her in daycare. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a page from my website back in the year 2000. I worked as a janitor, a sports photographer, and a film reviewer until I met a journalist named David Carr, who convinced me to take my site seriously and start making serious money. David Carr died in 2016. My baby is 23 and living in Brooklyn, and I'm still blogging about the Oscars, 22 years and counting. Eventually, the site made money, and that's when the Academy sued me for trademark infringement, and OscarWatch.com became AwardsDaily.com. Say goodbye to Hollywood. The collapse of the Hollywood empire plays like a whodunit. Was it superhero movies that made Hollywood untold billions, but also alienated more discerning audiences who then turned to the small screen? Yes. Was it the big boom of the internet that birthed an entire solar system of content to compete with? Yes. Was it Hollywood's focus on international box office to make the really big money? Yes. When I first started, Gladiator was the film that could win Best Picture. It was a big studio movie that made $187 million. Last year, Coda was released by Apple TV and only made about $1 million in total. But it was the first film with a predominantly deaf cast to win. That trajectory, my entire career online, tells you everything you need to know about what happened to the Oscars and the film industry. It used to be that the Oscars helped drive the movie business. The films would be released to the public would either be a hit or not. The Oscars were built to award films that were a success. They had to be a hit with the public, even to be considered for Best Picture. Most of the biggest hits of any given year either won Best Picture or came close. The public mattered because the box office mattered. Over time, however, as Hollywood and the country began to divide between the cultural elites and everyone else, studios started making the kinds of movies Oscar voters liked, not what the general public liked. They were the first-class passengers on an airplane, getting custom-made meals grown in a hothouse to their specific tastes. Back in coach, well, let them eat Marvel. 
Think of it like the salads they offer at McDonald's. They make their money on Big Macs, but offering salads gives the appearance that they care about the public's health. Oscar movies are the salads no one orders and no one eats, but makes Hollywood look good. If Oscar movies made money, all the better. It didn't make much difference. They wanted to be seen as good people doing great things, billionaires who still cared about the art. Eventually, that need to be seen as good would suck them into a full-blown religious cult, an adaptation that would have disastrous consequences for the entire industry, especially when those same first-class passengers were still so freaked out by COVID they would wear masks while walking in the park alone. Now, even they aren't showing up to buy tickets and sit in a theater potentially full of germs. The election of Barack Obama changed everything on the left, especially in Hollywood. It's shocking how much the Democrats have merged with the film industry and the Oscar race. Obama is a regular fixture on Netflix and will have a documentary, very likely, in the Oscar race this year. Hillary Clinton has a show on Apple TV. By 2009, the first film to win Best Picture was also the first film by a woman to win Best Picture. It was The Hurt Locker, and it had only made around 15 million. Twelve Years a Slave would drop in 2013, the first film by a black director to win. Heading into the 2016 Oscar race, La La Land was set to win Best Picture. I had left the Dolby Theater and was driving home when someone called me to tell me Moonlight, a coming-of-age story about a black gay man, actually won. I had predicted Moonlight would win, but had left in a fit of rage, thinking they were going to give it to the racist white guy movie. Back then, I was considered the first woke blogger. I spent years writing from the perspective of race and gender, such that almost nothing else mattered. So I was happy that night. I too had gotten caught up in the lie that La La Land was somehow racist because a white character was explaining jazz. But by the next year... When the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri came out and was about the redemption of a racist cop, the internet lost its mind. The movie was racist. The filmmaker was racist. It didn't win Best Picture. The Shape of Water won instead. But that was the first time I started speaking out loudly about what appeared to be mass hysteria hitting the Oscar race. That was also when I became a target. Twitter users started calling me a white supremacist with no idea of what I had been writing about for the previous decade. But things would get much worse the next year, in 2018. Green Book caused such a controversy that the past tweets and history of the filmmakers were dragged into the public square. Critics viciously attacked the film. I stood against the tide and defended it, even talking to the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) Welcome. Hey, everybody! This is Dr. Donald Schur. Merry Christmas. Being sung by choir. Come on, make some room. Get this man a plane. Hello. You must be Dolores. Welcome. Bon Natale. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your husband with me. Thank you for helping him with the letters.
Green Book's win caused such a shockwave with the Voting Academy that to date no film made by a white male has won either picture or director. Activists would say, so what? Let other people take a turn. The problem is that they are now giving out awards to make history, to satisfy the demands of activists or to virtue signal, but they've come a long way from awarding on merit, which is the whole point of film awards. The ratings tell the tale. Unlike the Oscars and the SAG Awards, the Golden Globes hadn't yet become grief porn for Democrats mad at Trump. Ricky Gervais was their host in 2020, and he called them out on their hypocrisy. His video has more views on YouTube than most of these award shows combined for the past five years. That would have been the only way for the Golden Globes to boost their ratings, give people what they really want, someone to take the piss out of the sanctimonious, self-congratulatory, hypocritical industry. Many talented people of colour were snubbed in major categories. Um, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about that. The Hollywood foreign press are all very, very racist. So, <laughs> fifth time. So, we were going to do an in-memoriam this year, but when I saw the list of people that had died, it wasn't diverse enough. It just, no. It was mostly white people. And I thought, nah, not on my watch. So, maybe next year. Let's, let's see what happens. No one cares about movies anymore. No one goes to the cinema. No one really watches network TV. Everyone's watching Netflix. This show should just be me coming out going, well done, Netflix, you win. Everything. Good night. But no, no, we've got to drag it out for three hours. You could binge watch the entire first season of Afterlife instead of watching this show. That... That's a show about a man who wants to kill himself because his wife dies of cancer, and it's still more fun than this, okay? <laughs> Spoiler alert, um, season two is on the way, so in the end, he obviously didn't kill himself. Just like Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Shut up! I know he's your friend, but I don't care. The Golden Globes hadn't seen the same ratings drop as the Oscars or the SAG Awards, mainly because they would hire Gervais, and they weren't overtly political. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a chart of television ratings of the Golden Globe Awards that show from 2016 to 2019, no ratings dropped. From 2020 to 2023, their worst ratings. The other two show a significant decline starting around 2016. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a chart of SAG that shows the ratings dropping from 2017, 2018, 2019, and on down. And then another graphic of the Academy Awards showing the same drop, which really did start around 2015, but just kept dropping until now. The Great Awakening of 2020 upended the film industry root and branch. The British Film Academy now has a committee of activist film critics handpicking most acting and directing nominees. The Oscars have an inclusivity mandate that must be met for any film to qualify for the Oscars. Though it isn't official until 2024, Filmmakers have no doubt been monitored closely by activists with clipboards, checking boxes, and keeping score. The idea is not to offend a single person deemed marginalized. Nearly every group is covered under that umbrella, except white men. None of this is working out for Hollywood, except in how it makes people at the top feel less guilty about their own wealth and status. But the power in Hollywood hasn't changed. They've simply found a way to mask who they really are. Our Town, 
So much of our shared stories revolved around our societal anchors. Town squares, neighborhoods, the nuclear family, softball games, churches, synagogues, and Sundays in the park. Small Town USA meant something. It defined our base camp that nearly all storytelling for the past 100 years relied on. It's a Wonderful Life still resonates with audiences even now because it tells a universal story and is authentic to its characters. But it's also a film that assumes the majority of its audience believes in the same values, especially Christianity, because that represented the majority, even for non-whites back then. The film opens with the citizens of Bedford Falls, praying to God to help George Bailey, because he was the kind of person whose life touched so many other lives. Their prayers are answered when an angel named Clarence magically appears. Now you can see screeching activists on Twitter complaining about that, just as they do when people say Merry Christmas, which, by the way, George Bailey shouts from the rooftops when he learns how to live again. The message of It's a Wonderful Life continues to resonate through time with everyone, not just white people. That what matters in life, really matters, is our family, our friends, and the nice things we do for others. Nothing hits quite as hard as the line, Dear Ernie, a toast to my big brother George, the richest man in town. There is no way to make a movie that doesn't offend someone. This year, Hollywood got a clear message when they released a gay rom-com called Bros, which bombed. They got another message with Lightyear, featuring an infamous lesbian kiss, which also bombed. The majority in this country are still mostly white, mostly heterosexual, mostly Christian, or religious in some way. That doesn't make Americans homophobic. It just means that our shared story reflects the world we know. Hollywood seems to believe it should be in the business of telling people how to think, how to live, what to teach their kids. But that's not their job, nor their place. The free market tells the tale. If you build it, they will come. Top Gun Maverick made $700 million because it gave the public, the majority, what it wanted. An alpha male, flying fast planes, and getting the girl. The ratings for awards shows are dropping for the same reason movies are no longer great. They have not only forgotten who they are, but they've forgotten who we are. Award shows now are like watching some kind of religious healing meeting where marginalized groups are trotted on stage and white people in the audience flail about, weep, and beg for forgiveness and absolution. Then they are healed for their sins of privilege. 
It's extremely rare to see a great speech anymore that isn't burdened with some kind of woke virtue signaling or apology or lecture about how we all need to do better. There was one great speech at the Golden Globes. It was so good, it reminded me of what film awards can be at their best. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I was raised to never forget where I came from and to always remember who gave me my first opportunity. I am so happy to see Steven Spielberg here tonight. Steven, thank you. Uh, when I started my career as a child actor in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, I felt, I felt so very lucky to have been chosen. As I grew older, I started to wonder if that was it, if, if that was just luck. For so many years, I was afraid that I had nothing more to offer, uh, that no matter what I did, I would, I would never surpass what I achieved as a kid. Thankfully, more than 30 years later, two guys thought of me. They remembered that kid. And they gave me an opportunity to try again. We still need speeches like that to remind us how great it feels to win. That is the only value of award shows. We don't need lectures by the most privileged people in the world. We don't need condescending insults at people who voted for Trump or even Trump himself by now. Just shut up already. Haven't we had enough? We still need heroes. We still need our strong male role models. We need good father figures. We need glamorous, beautiful movie stars and stories that reflect the struggles of everyday life. We don't need their unending navel-gazing, their ongoing obsession with ranking people based on identity. The SAG Awards have just announced they'll be moving to Netflix. Their press release made sure to point out how now they could be watched by people all over the world. They don't really want to broaden their reach and appeal to the other half of America they abandoned long ago. If ratings don't matter, the public doesn't either. Hollywood film studios, too, can rely on streaming for the films they want to make and the messages they want to send. No box office pressure to change how they make movies. But we know that the best movies throughout Hollywood's history were the ones that told universal stories because they cared about those who do, to quote George Bailey, the working and living and dying in this town. They knew that what the elites of society cared about was boring and insular, Otherwise, there wouldn't be in It's a Wonderful Life, a Mr. Smith goes to Washington, a Casablanca, or a Godfather. Those old movies had to be good because they had to appeal to as many people as humanly possible. Did they appeal to everyone? Of course not. Did they leave minorities and marginalized groups behind? Yes, they did. But the solution to that problem 
isn't to force dogma into movies to make everything equitable and intersectional. It's not healthy for a society to have huge sections of its population that don't share the same culture, information, values, and experiences. The less we have in common with each other, the easier it gets to dehumanize people in the other tribe. Friends become enemies, families and relationships dissolve, and we end up with a world where people aren't even allowed to do business with the heretics who don't toe the line. Roger Ebert once said, We all are born with a certain package. We are who we are. Where we were born, who we were born as, how we were raised. We're kind of stuck inside that person. And the purpose of civilization and growth is to be able to reach out and empathize a little bit with other people. And for me, the movies are like a machine that generates empathy. This is what I love most about movies. But empathy isn't actually possible if truth is subjective and reality varies based on a person's intersectional identity. Empathy requires an objective, shared reality. If your entire understanding of the world is dependent on whether or not you were a cis white woman or a gay black man or a member of some other group, then we are all permanently divided. We will never understand each other. And that leaves us with a cold, dark world that can't tolerate nuance or differences of opinion. But while I don't want to see every aspect of our society and economy split along political lines, it is true that the only thing that will ultimately make a difference is competition. More people need to break free from Hollywood's stranglehold on the production of new movies and TV shows and start making their own outside of that system. And ideally, they should do that by focusing less on lecturing their audience and more on telling engaging stories that are appealing to a wider range of people. Fortunately, the market will reward whoever figures out how to do that well. One of the most important and practical lessons I've learned after a lot of years working with economists and entrepreneurs is that the key to success in business is shockingly simple. You ready? Here it is. Find a way to create something a lot of other people want and figure out how to get it to them at a price they're willing to pay. Easier said than done, obviously, but that's really all there is to it. And it's just as true for artists as it is for plumbers and electricians. If you want to earn a great living or create a profitable business, your first priority has to be your customer. For most of its existence, the entertainment industry understood this. It was the best in the world at creating movies, TV shows, music, comics, and all kinds of content that hundreds of millions of people loved. The major studios and publishers dominated their competition because they were laser-focused on making audiences happy by telling interesting stories. Somewhere along the way, the industry stopped caring about that, becoming more about promoting a political agenda than producing great content. And now, with so many great scripts and talented creators being boxed in by this restrictive ideology, there's enormous room for new entrepreneurs to take over. I have no idea who will get there first, but after decades of monolithic control by the gatekeepers in Hollywood, it's pretty exciting to see people making legitimate content outside that system. In a market economy, competition drives a tremendous amount of growth and change. And I think in this case, change is long overdue. We still need stories that move us. Those stories will never be told if Hollywood is frozen in fear. 
and always looking over their shoulder for the next accusatory tweet or agonizing think piece in Salon. We need more outsider studios to find the best scripts and make the best movies. If they do, people will come. Ray. People will come, Ray. They'll come to Iowa for reasons they can't even fathom. They'll turn up your driveway, not knowing for sure why they're doing it. They'll arrive at your door as innocent as children, longing for the past. Of course, we won't mind if you look around, you'll say. It's only $20 per person. They'll pass over the money without even thinking about it. Where there's money they have, and peace they like. Ray, just sign the papers. And they'll walk out to the bleachers. Sit in shirt sleeves on a perfect afternoon. They'll find they have reserved seats somewhere along one of the baselines. Where they sat when they were children and cheered their heroes. And they'll watch the game. It'll be as if they dipped themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick that I have to brush them away from their faces. Ray, when the bank opens in the morning, they'll foreclose. People will come, Ray. You're broke, Ray. You sell now or you lose everything. Thank you for listening to this podcast. SashaStone.substack.com You'll have to forgive me for the delay in getting this out, but as you know, it's Oscar season, so I've been a little bit busy. Remember, to thine own self, be true.